0: So again, if you haven't already, please open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you're going to find that on page 638. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to listen to the preaching of your word. God, it is one thing to read your word, it is one thing to study your word, and it is Another thing to listen to the teaching of Your Word. So God, I pray that You would help me to communicate well. And I ask that what I say today would be faithful and helpful for everyone here. Give us ears and minds to conceive what You have for us in Your Word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be studying verses 9 through 14 this morning. Let me read the first half of verse 9, which tells us what we're going to be reading about. And so, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul is writing to the Colossians to this church in Colossae. And Paul says, from the day we heard of your conversion, most likely, from the day we heard about you hearing the Gospel, believing the Gospel, placing your faith in in Jesus Christ, we've been doing something ever since we heard that God had moved among you. And he says that from the day we heard, we have not stopped praying for you. And now what he's going to tell them is, and here's how we have been praying for you. So we've been praying for you for a while now, and I want you to know that this is how we have been praying for you. And this is meant to be an encouragement to them, and it's meant to be instructive. It's meant to be an encouragement. Hey, we're praying for you. Have you had people tell you that when you're going through something and you've been encouraged by it been encouraged to know that that they're praying for you I mean to think that they're taking time out of their busy schedule their busy day I mean if, if they really are doing that and they're taking time out of their schedule and, and when they're on their knees or when they're sitting on the end of their bed or at their desk or in their car or with their wife or with their kids, wherever that's happening, but that they're setting time aside and they're setting aside time to think about you and to go to God on your behalf and to pray for you. That's a, that's a big deal. And some of you have been encouraged by that. Paul wants the Colossians to be encouraged by that. Hey, we're, we're thinking about you. The closest we get to that in our culture is we send a, a greeting card, right? There's a whole section. And what's that section called? Thinking of you, or there's a, a praying for you section, but a thinking of you section because we know that hey, it feels good to know that someone was thinking about me. What's well, what Paul's saying? But even better, he's not just thinking about them, not just having thoughts about them. Because really, when someone's thinking of you, you don't know that doesn't tell you much. They could be bad thoughts, thinking bad thoughts of you. Because I'm praying for you. So he means that to be encouraging to them, but it's not only encouraging, it's also instructive because he's also going to show them this is this is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. Let me model prayer for you. So be encouraged, I'm praying for you, and this is how I'm praying for you. So you learn, you learn something here, you learn how to pray. That's how you learn to pray. You learn to pray by listening to others pray. How did Jesus teach His disciples to pray? He prayed in front of them, right? He said, this then is how you should pray. And they bowed their heads and He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. And they're supposed to listen to Jesus and and learn how to commune with God and how to... How to pray with God. How John Calvin said to crawl up in God's lap and talk with Him. That's what you do when you you pray. So, they're reading this prayer and they're getting encouraged. Wow, Paul! The Apostle Paul is praying for us. He's in prison in Rome. And he's thinking of us and praying for us. And Look at the wonderful things that he's praying for us. And, hey, that's how we should pray for other people. That's how we should pray. If that's how the Apostle Paul prays, then then maybe our prayers should also have the same elements that, that his have. So we notice a few things. Just if we look back at verses three through 14, our scripture today, we can make some real general observations like, there's great balance in Paul's prayer. There's balance in Paul's prayer. And what we see here, we're going to see this alternating between praise and petition. Thanking God and making requests of God. And it's not, when Paul prays, it's not lopsided. Some of you may find that your prayers are sort of lopsided. They're, they're either all praise or, or, or maybe they're all petition. We tend to, I think, in this culture where we we have many needs and, and wants and are used to getting what we Need and getting what we want. We probably tend to be heavy on the petition side. So my, my prayers really, my prayer life really heats up when? When I need something from God. But Paul's prayers aren't lopsided. You see, even in the order of our service, where there's a prayer of petition, there's a prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of confession. These are all ways that we that we commune with God. So Paul alternates between praise and petition in verses 3-8. through 8, We looked at that. He has expressed his thankfulness to God. And he's going to express thankfulness to God again today. But last week, we looked at that in verses 3-8. through 8, He expressed his thankfulness to God. He was thankful that the Colossians, thanks to God, thankful that the Colossians heard the Gospel, believed the Gospel, and that the Gospel was bearing fruit in their lives. That's basically what he thanked God for. I want to thank You that the the Colossians have heard the Gospel, so thank You for sending Epaphras to them. Thankful that they believe the Gospel, so thank You for sending Your Holy Spirit so they would understand what they were hearing. And thank You that the Gospel is now, as You promised, of course, it's bearing fruit in their lives. There are good trees with good roots, and so there's good fruit. Thank You, God. So He thanks God for, for all of that. And now, following that thankfulness to God, we're going to find Petition. So he starts with thanking God and praising God. And now he's going to present his request to God. He's going to to follow his own counsel, his own advice that he gave the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He told the Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, or some of your Bibles say, petition, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. We're going to see that same pattern in Paul's prayer today. That same pattern of petition and thanksgiving to God. Philippians 4, six. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, so what is the solution? How do I not be anxious about anything? Are some of you anxious? Are some of you worried? Some of you struggle with Anxiety. We really struggle with worry. You read verses like in Matthew 6, do not worry about tomorrow, and you think that's impossible. This is totally impossible. I don't don't know how how to do that. If you need help doing that, what does Paul tell the Philippians? Do not be anxious about anything, but then he gives a, a remedy. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, so you're going to be thankful while you're Giving your requests to God by prayer and petition, present all your requests to God. Or elsewhere in Scripture it says, "Cast all your cares on God, because He what? He cares for you. He cares for you." Some of you may go the other way, and it says you're always praising God and thanking God, but you never ask Him because you feel bad asking for things. Maybe you're like that in life too. You, You never ask for help. You have a really hard time asking people for help. You don't want to look needy. You don't want to appear to take advantage of people. And you want to give the appearance that you've just got it all together and you don't need anyone's help and I'm self-sufficient. Thank you very much. And so you have a really hard time asking people for help. And that may translate into your walk with God. And you also have a hard time asking God for help. Well, I don't want to burden Him. I don't want to be that guy that just asks God for everything. I remember hearing the preacher talk about you know, the guy who just brings his grocery list to God and just, hey God, do all these things. And I don't, I don't want to do that. But remember, remember that one of the highest compliments you can pay to God is to ask Him for help. Because if you're presenting your request to God, what you're saying to God in presenting your request to Him is, God, You are the one that can work here. You are the one who can help me. You are the one who can save me and rescue me and strengthen me. You are the one. It's a compliment. You're praising God and worshiping Him even if you thank Him. Can your prayers be lopsided and you just... Praise and thanks and no petition? Absolutely. Can your prayers be lopsided? It's all petition and asking God for things, and there's no praise and thanksgiving? Absolutely. So you want balance in your prayer life. And Paul demonstrates that for us. And the way I see his request here in verses nine through fourteen, I think his request is threefold. He asks God for three things. And so there's three sections here in verses nine through fourteen. There's a request made in, look at the verses, in the first petition, verse 9. And the request that he makes in verse 9 is, may you be filled with the knowledge of His will. So verses 9 and 10, Paul is praying, he's requesting of God, hey, may the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Then he makes another request in his second petition, which is in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power. So his first petition, may you be filled with the knowledge of His will. Secondly, may you be strengthened with all power. And then there's a third petition in verses 12-14. through Look at verse 12. He's making a request of God regarding the Colossians. May you give thanks to the Father. So, putting those together, Paul's prayer is that the Colossians may, number one, know God's will. Number two, have the power to do God's will with, number three, thankfulness. That's his request he's making known to God and it's threefold. God, will You help the Colossians to know Your will? Will you then give them the power to do your will? And number three, will you help them to, once they know your will, and you give them the power to do your will, to do it with a thankful heart, with thankfulness? That's his prayer for the Colossians. Now, one of the things as we walk through these that I would encourage each of you to do is to examine your own prayer life. Do you pray for people like this? Are, are these elements in your prayer life do you are is your prayer life this comprehensive is your is your is your prayer life less comprehensive is it more shallow do you really think about what you're praying have you ever just started rambling to god just just rambling closest i've ever gotten to speaking in tongues where i'm just praying and i'm just I'm just sort of rambling, and before I read, like, I, I, I start to think about what I said, and start to evaluate what I said, and but I can't believe I just said that. I'm not even really thinking about what I'm. I'm I started off thinking about it. I mean, you do that in conversations with people, right? Oh, these words are coming out, and I can't believe I just said that, and just kind of detaching my mind from my mouth, and here are these words. But well, we can do that with God too. Be, but think about what you're saying. Be thoughtful and intentional about what it is that you're saying. So, consider your own prayer life. Let's let's look at the first request, the first request Paul makes in verse nine and ten. He starts off asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. So, let me read that whole verse again. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His Will, So Paul here is asking God to work in such a way that the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's what Paul is asking. Paul is asking God, God, will You work in the Colossians in such a way that they will be filled with with the knowledge of your will. Your will, God. Your mind. Your heart. Your desires for them. Your plans for them. That's what we mean when we say your will. That's my will. That's your will. What is my will? My will is my mind and my heart and my desire and my plan. That's my will. So he's talking about God's will, God's mind, and God's heart, and what God desires for them and what God's plans are for them. And he says, God, will you fill the Colossians with knowledge of that? God, I want the Colossians to know your mind and your heart and your thoughts and your desires and your plans. Fill them with it. Now when we speak or read of God's will, In the Bible, we need to make a distinction. Every time we come across God's will, I think almost every time we come across God's will in studying through the Word, I bring this point up so that we make a distinction. Because there's lots of places in your Bible where you read about God's will and the will of God, and it doesn't always mean the same thing. In the same way, when you read about love in the Bible, it doesn't always mean the same thing. Love is complex. God's will is complex. So we need to make a distinction and figure out which one is Paul talking about here when he says that he wants the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So let me make a distinction between the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. Or His preceptive will And His decretive will. There is a secret will of God. A secret plan of God. And there is a revealed will of God. There is a decretive will of God. That which He has decreed will come to pass. We don't necessarily know. And there's a preceptive will of God. His precepts. His commands. His instructions. His revealed will. So number one, God has a decretive will that only He knows. So you and I don't know anything about God unless God reveals Himself to us. So if we do not learn about God primarily by our searching and our seeking, we learn about God primarily by Him revealing Himself to us. And then upon that revelation is our searching and seeking but here's the deal. God has not reveal everything to us. God has never agreed to full disclosure. Ever. So God has a of will that only He knows. Paul here is not asking that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of that will. He's not saying, God, will you fill them with the knowledge of your secret will that they would know the secret things that belong to you, that you would give them a prophecy or a fortune telling, you help them to see the future, that they'd know what's next, they'd know specifically what to do in this situation, that you'd give them a sign, that you'd give them a voice from heaven, that you would give them insight into your secret plan and your secret will. Now you're going to see this is important because a lot of Christians are after that. So that's not what Paul is praying for. He's not praying that God would let them know about all your secret plans so they can stop freaking out. Because if they just know what your secret plans are, they won't be freaking out anymore because they'll see how it's going to work out for good. And the Bible never calls you to do that. Because you, know, you need to have faith. It's going to work out for your good. I know, I know, I, know, I have heard that. How's it going to work out for my good? That's what we want to know, right? Yes, I know it's going to work out for my good. Romans 8, 20. I've heard it. It's on my fridge. It's highlighted People email it to me once a week. I know that verse. What we want to know is how is it going to work out for good? Many of us are discontent until we get to a point where we can, oh, now I see how it's working out. And then we start to be faithful. Isn't that sad? I've been guilty of that so many times. And I look back with so much regret and say, God, I wish." here I am now. I see it starting to turn for good. And all of a sudden, my faithful... Faithfulness just got like a jump start. Like a boost. And I feel guilty for that. Because I didn't just trust Him and take Him at His word. I needed to see it start to turn. So Paul is not asking that God would fill the Colossians with the knowledge of God's secret will. Two verses where we find There's many, but where we find the secret will of God. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Revealed will. And a secret will. Or James 4.15 speaks of the Lord's will and it's talking about the secret will. Instead, you ought to say if it is the Lord's will, we will leave and do this or do that. Remember that Scripture? James is saying, okay, listen, you're making plans. Hey, we're going to go here next week. We're going to go here in a month. We're going to go here in a few months. He says, hey, just be careful. Make sure that at least in your mind you're saying something before that. And that is, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Because what is the point there? Because you don't know. That's a secret will. You don't know what God's plans are going to be. So make plans, but don't hold on to them so tightly as if you knew what God was going to do. So there's a secret will of God that you don't know. Maybe you're going to go here next week, and ne- but you don't know if the Lord wills we will do this or we will do that. That's a secret will of God. That's the decretive will of God. But there's also God's preceptive will. Precept, which means instruction or command. God's preceptive will that He does reveal You can call this God's revealed will. Paul is asking that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of that will. God, fill the Colossians with the knowledge of your revealed will. God, what do you want the Colossians to do? How do you expect the Colossians to live? God, reveal that will to them. Fill them up with the knowledge of that will. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18 through Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the will of God? That is the will of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. That is the revealed will of God. Plainly stated in Scripture. So, where do we find God's revealed will? Well, where is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18? Where do you find that? In a Bible. So where do we find God's revealed will? We find God's revealed will in the Scripture. Is there any other wills of God that He promises to reveal to us in other ways? No. No. We can get in a lot of trouble, right? A lot of trouble. If I start saying things like, no, there's signs and voices. You can get in a lot of trouble that way. There's no precept to look for God's will that way. There's no instruction to seek God's will in that way. We're always called back to God's word. This, Paul says, this lesson, is God's will for you." Or 1 Peter 2:15, "For it is God's will. great. We're going to learn what God's will is. Peter, what is God's will? For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. What is God's will? Well, here's one of the things that God's will is for you. It is that you, Christian, would silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That sounds cool. I like that. The silencer. That's right. God's called me to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Well, how? That by doing good. Oh, I was hoping it was going to say it by telling them to shut up. <laughs> Argue with them and bite with them. quarrel with them. Unfriend them. Painful things like this. But no, it is God's will that by doing good. So what is this? This is the revealed will of God. And then he says, Right? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Is that consistent with what we're saying? What is this will that he wants them to know? What's God's revealed will of how they should live? His instructions for them. Because his whole purpose for this, God, fill them with the knowledge of that will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When he says walk, he means live. Like Romans 6 talks about a new believer, they walk in newness of life. It doesn't mean that you literally, physically walk differently. It's about a Christian by the, you know, the gate and their step. and their, That's not what it's talking about. It's how you live. So, Paul, why are you praying? That they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so they could obey God. So they could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why does Paul want the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? His preceptive, revealed will. Or another term, His will of command so as to walk. So they can obey Him. The knowledge of God's will that we're talking about that I'm advocating you to seek after in God's Word is practical knowledge. It is practical knowledge. We want to know God's will so that we can do it. That's what it means when he says in all wisdom. Because what is wisdom? Wisdom is living your life and making decisions and facing your trials Informed by the truth of God. So the more you know God's word, and the more you know his truth, the more equipped you will be able, the, the more equipped you will be to exercise wisdom. Because wisdom is simply living life, applying God's truth. That's wisdom. So he wants the Colossians to please God, he wants them to honor God. So he says, God, will you? Fill them with the knowledge of this revealed will. So a Christian is wise and growing in wisdom. A Christian knows and understands God's revealed will. He is so full of the knowledge of God's will, God's standards, God's expectations, his desires that he is able to apply biblical principle to all that he does. And that's what you want. So, if Paul wanted for the Colossians what I want for you. I hope it's what you want for me. Fully pleasing to him, Paul says, you'll be pleasing to God when you walk in the way he wants you to walk, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So let me just say a couple things about these two different wills. I would encourage you, do not try and figure out God's secret will. Don't expect to figure out God's secret will. I would encourage you not to look for authoritative signs in your life. I'd encourage you not to sit real quietly and listen for still, small voices as some would encourage you to do. We would say, if you want to know God's will, read your Bible more. Read your Bible more. And while you're reading, pray. Pray that you'd understand it. That God would reveal Himself to you. People are searching today in our culture for God's secret will. Of course, we all want to know people's secrets, especially God's This is what people are trying to do when they say things like, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. Have you said that or have you heard somebody say that? I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. Now friends, really the appropriate response to that is, well, I've got good news. You don't have to look anymore. Here's where you'll find God's will for your life. Here's where you'll find God's will for your life. No, I'm trying to figure out whether to do this job or do that job. Well, you're not going to find that. But you're going to find this. Honor the Lord in all you do. Seek first the Kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. Don't be anxious about it, anything. but by See, there's so much for us to do. So much, and yet we kind of marginalize that and we get caught on these little tangents where I want to know God's secret will. I want to know His plan. And I start looking for signs. I start listening to voices. And, and and I'm not now focused on what I should be focused on. God's revealed will. I've got so much to focus on. I have so much to learn. Or I'm praying about what God would have me do in this situation. Well, it depends what you mean by that when you say that. I'm praying that about what God would have me do in this situation? Because the simple answer is honor the Lord. And if you're trying to figure out how to honor the Lord, okay. And I think we can probably figure it out pretty quickly actually. But if you're trying to figure out about A, B, or C, and I'm just waiting to find a verse or hear a voice or see a sign, no, you're going after the secret will of God. So put that aside, and remember the secret things belong to God, and what do you have to read? What do you have to hold on to? Follow that, right? And so the encouragement becomes to avoid this sort of spiritual procrastination. That's what that ends up being. You're just procrastinating. You're not doing anything. You're not moving forward. You're not making decisions, and you're spiritualizing it. Just waiting for God to make it clear. Well, how long are you going to wait? And what are you waiting for? He's equipped you with everything you need for life and godliness. His word says so. So we would simply say, read your Bible and do something. You've heard us say that before. We'd encourage you in that way. I'm not sure what to do. Well, just read your Bible and do something. Please do something. Do something. Read your Bible. Read your Bible and do something. While you're doing something, read your Bible. While you're reading your Bible, do something. This isn't complicated, right? I think I got it. John Calvin said, monstrous indeed is the madness of men who desire thus to subject the immeasurable to the pun measure of their own reason those who seek to know more than God has revealed are madmen. Wherefore, let us delight ourselves more in wise ignorance than in an immoderate and intoxicated curiosity to know more than God permits. Amen. So ask yourself, are you filled with the knowledge of God's will? Do you pray that others would be filled with the knowledge of God? God's will. Paul's second petition, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Here's his second petition. And of course, these all go together. Once you know what God's will is, that's what he's already prayed, once you know what God's will is and you set your mind to do God's will, right, so you read a verse. Uh, I'm not doing that. I need to do that. I need to work on this. You all have this happen. So you know God's will now. That, that prayer is being answered. You're being filled with the knowledge of God's will. You set your mind to do God's will, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's great. And then what do you find? You find that isn't easy you find there's some obstacles. Oh, it's not just as easy as reading it and doing it. I hope that's your experience. Like mine. It's it's easy to merely listen to the Word of God and not do what it says because when I go to do what it says, I find that the, the red carpet's not rolled out for me. There's a lot of trouble in my way. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of obstacles from within, from without. Just to name three the world, the enemy, and the flesh. And those are, those are big. Those are big problems. Those are, those are major obstacles. And P- Paul knows this. So I figured out what God's will is. I, I want to do God's will. I want to please Him. But there's a problem. One problem is the world. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. but I love the world. And I love the stuff in this world. I love it too much. And I want it too much. It's luring, isn't it? It's intoxicating, isn't it? I find that's one of the hardest tightropes to walk in my life. The hardest tightropes to walk is is to enjoy and be thankful. For the gifts that God has given me, to enjoy things that are in this world, but to not love them too much. I, I just find myself falling off on, on, on the wrong side over and over again. All right, this is why people hold themselves up in monasteries and cut themselves off from everything because they just, that's the only way I could do this. I just need to get rid of everything. Just I need to get myself off the grid. I need not have relationships with anybody. I'm just going to become an ascetic. I'm just going to deny myself everything. Not going to enjoy anything. I'm going to be stoic with no joy. Paul's going to correct that because that seems sometimes like the only way to really walk that rope and not love this world too much. Because when I start loving it a little, I start loving it too much. It becomes too important to me, and I start getting mad when things don't go my way. They're getting upset. Do not love this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the world is a problem, an obstacle. We have an enemy or an adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That just sounds frightening. It's not encouraging. That sounds scary. We have an adversary. He's like a lion. I don't like lions. I mean, I like him in pictures or in movies or behind bars, but I don't want one prowling around to eat me. Because your enemy is like that. Satan is like that. So I've got the world to deal with. I've got an arch enemy to deal with. All these problems without. And then it gets worse, doesn't it? Because the problems aren't just without. Because if the problems were without, that would be a good case for holding yourself up in the mountains, cutting off contact with everything and everybody. The problem is you take perhaps the greatest obstacle with you. The flesh within. I mean, you as a Christian, you've been made a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But there is clearly remaining sin. There's this little slice of the flesh that's still... Holds on, still vies for attention and vies for its way. Sinful nature that remains. It'll be there until we're in a state of glory in heaven in our resurrected bodies, perfect and sinless. But not until then. So for now I've got this problem within Romans 8:13, "For if you live according to the flesh, now as Christians, you don't live in the flesh anymore. We don't have time to go into all that, but you don't live in the flesh anymore. That's gone. But you still surrender to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In Romans thirteen fourteen, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. So you will find, as you know God's will and set your mind to do God's will, you will find a lot of reluctance in you by nature. I mean, maybe not when you're hearing the sermon, maybe not when you're in fellowship with your Christian friend who's sharpening you like iron, maybe not when you you, 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 you just read the verse that, and, and God just pinned you to the wall and conviction is strong, but give it a couple hours, right? Give it a few hours and you might you might start to find this ugly sort of reluctance creeping up. Here I go I was so I was so convinced that I was never going to be selfish. Fish again, and here I am a few hours later. I'm being selfish again. Paul just goes off in Romans, and he just says, "I am just wretched." He's like, "I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do." Do you understand that that battle, that war that is still within, even in the Christian, this reluctance creeping up? You'll find opposition from the world, which is increasing even in our community. You will know the temptations and devices of a great enemy. So, you will need enough strength and power to do what God calls you to do. Does that make sense why Paul's next petition is then, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And so Paul prays that the Colossians would be strengthened when He says to be strengthened with all power, of course that doesn't mean that God will give you all His power. But it does mean that He will give you all the power you need. You hear that all over in the Bible. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Okay, God's going to provide you a way out His grace is sufficient for me. Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. He's asking God to remove it. He wants this weakness taken. He's still got this weakness, but God reminds him in that weakness, you need my strength, and my strength is sufficient for you. It doesn't mean that God gives you when it's talking about power and strength, don't expect to have these enormous reserves of power and strength. Like, oh, I've got so much power. You want some of this? Just gonna save this up for a later time, a little extra here. Often it will it will be just barely enough. I find that is usually the case with me. It'll be just barely enough. Like you get you get through that fire and your clothes are burned, but you're okay. Just enough. You're not dead, but you're pretty close. A faintly burning wick. Isaiah says a bruised reed her reed has just been been bent 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 it's going to break it's going to break it's going to break doesn't break then what does God do it's going to break it's going to break it's going to break what does God do just enough just enough strength just enough power 2 Corinthians 12, nine and 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you just hear Paul say what he is content with? He didn't say, I'm content with not having the dinner I wanted tonight. Sometimes I'm content for the l- lamest things and so proud of myself. I didn't get everything done that I wanted to get done today, and I'm okay with that. Wow, a really big deal. It's amazing, Eric. So content. Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm all right with it. Calamities. What are your calamities? My calamities are weak so often, just weak. Well, how is he content? Strength and power that God has given him. John Newton said this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. So you need strength. You need power from God. Because to do this in this life with those obstacles, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him, requires the power of Jesus Christ in you. And you cannot do it without the power of Jesus Christ in you. And you will not have the power of Jesus Christ in you apart from your devotion to Him, dependence on Him, and prayers for His power and strength. Do you pray for God's power and strength? Can you get deeper than God get me through this day? How should God get you through this day? God, I ask that the strength and power of Jesus Christ would fill me today and strengthen me to do what I need to do in a way that glorifies You and honors You and brings us to deep repentance and sorrow and confession when we don't and when we fail and asking for more strength, more grace. He says, For all endurance and patience with joy endurance and patience. So God, give them the strength to do Your will, but to do it in this way. Not to just check it off the list, but to do it with patience and joy. Two words, endurance and patience, which are very similar. But they both have notes of a long time. A long time. Endurance. Patience. It means a long time endurance and patience. It means that there's a heavy weight on you for a long time and you stand up under it. Give them that kind of strength, God. I mean, we're quick to pray that the burden would be taken. God, lift lift the weight. Make this bad thing stop. Take this bad circumstance away. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for that. But is that all you're praying for is relief? I think the the biblical pattern in prayer, when you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, more than God give me relief from this, is God give me the strength to endure this. Sometimes the relief from it can be kind of our subtle way of saying, God, you screwed up. And you did this wrong. And okay, ha, funny. Okay, it's been a few days. Now relieve me. Take it away. Remove it. Okay, I got it. I learned my lesson. And it can be kind of presumptuous if you get really deep into that. Okay, I'm praying every day, God, remove it, remove it, remove it. That's why Paul gets to the point where he's like, okay, I besieged the Lord three times. I don't know what that meant. He had like these official prayer days where he went up into the mountains or whoop. He's like three times formally, I said, God, take this away from me. I'm convinced he doesn't want to take it away from me. So, God, give me the strength and the grace. And now I'm learning God's grace is sufficient for me. So, it's okay to pray for God to relieve you. You'd be weird if you didn't pray that. You don't enjoy it. So, you, you pray that God relieves you, but just make sure you're also praying, God, but God, as you have this weight on me, give me endurance and patience to stand up underneath it. Give the Colossians, Paul says, endurance and patience with joy, with joy. So that means he's not saying give them a stiff upper lip. Can just help them to just grip their teeth and suck it up and bear it out? Because we can do that and you can do that by your own strength. But are you going to stand up under the trials of God with a smile on your face, a real smile on your face? That's going to take the power of Jesus Christ. Some of you are just stronger than others, and you can endure more just, just naturally. And you can just there'll be the stoicism about you, and that's not what he is advocating. Just no feeling, no emotion. Yeah, no anger, no sadness, no sorrow, no joy, nothing. But I'm, I'm, I'm enduring and being patient. That's not what Paul's talking about. He us do it with joy, with joy. And then his final request, verses twelve through fourteen. He's saying, God, may you fill them with the knowledge of your will so they know what your will is, so they could walk in a manner worthy of you. Then give them the strength and the power to do it, but not just to do it, to do it with thankfulness. Remember Paul's prayers of the Colossians may one, know God's will, and two, have the power to do God's will, three, with thankfulness. Giving thanks to the Father. And then in the verses to follow, you see what Paul does. He doesn't just say, be thankful. He gives them the ground of their thankfulness. Giving thanks to the Father. Okay, why should I give thanks to the Father? Well, let me tell you, Paul says. Let me read them together. The Father, what kind of Father? who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Remember, Christian, we were not always qualified for heaven. Everybody's got an inheritance. Everybody's got an inheritance. Everybody has someone, something to look forward to. Now, when I say something to look forward to. I don't necessarily mean something good to look forward to. Something to look forward to. It's either good or bad. It's either with God or without God. It's either heaven or hell. But there's an inheritance that's laid up for everybody. There's a, there's, there's there's something that we're all moving toward, that we're all heading toward. And when we were born, we were by nature objects of wrath. Offending God and under the righteous judgment of God. And God had inheritance laid up for those who believe, but we were not qualified for that inheritance. We were not fit for that inheritance. We were not a part of that family to whom that inheritance is laid up for and given. So we had to be qualified. We didn't make ourselves qualified. That's really important, Paul's wording. What did God the Father do? Well, he tells us here, he qualified you. He qualified you. We're not used to that. We qualify ourselves for things. I went to college. I took this class. I, I, I met these requirements. I got this together. And, and so I did it. I'm qualifying myself for whatever it is that I need to do. Well, you didn't do that for God. God qualified you. God qualified you and made you fit for His kingdom so that you could have an inheritance. And the inheritance is an an eternal inheritance. It means you have the inheritance now. It means the fulfillment will be one day, but it's your inheritance right now. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Listen to the picture that Paul is painting there. He says, listen, you lived in a domain of darkness. You were a part of a citizenship of God-haters. And God transferred you from one domain to this kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1-10 just speaks for itself. Let me read it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Acts 26.18 says, To whom I am sending you, Paul is recounting his testimony of God's calling him to ministry. God said to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. So God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom... We have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. To summarize, Paul says, you can give thanks as you're strengthened to do God's will. You can do this with a thankful heart because you've been rescued. Because you have been delivered. And everybody needs to be delivered. Everybody needs to be rescued. Rescued. Have you been rescued? Have you been delivered from your sin? We are all, according to Sinclair Ferguson says, addicts. We are all in bondage. We are all addicted to loving ourselves more than loving God. And no human being has been able to escape that. I'm just addicted to it. That is my default. Just come back to me and my will and my desire. Even the good things I do for others that look so good on the outside, well, I'm still doing it for me on the inside. Makes me feel good about myself. Makes people happy with me. Gets me approval. Gets me compliments. Gets me status. Just impure motive on top of impure motive. I'm addicted to loving myself more than loving God. I'm addicted to living for myself rather than living for the glory of God. And if you're not a Christian, you are imprisoned by that desire. And as you are imprisoned, you are under the judge, the warden, if you will, who is God. And you're under His righteous judgment so you need to be delivered you need to be saved you need to be rescued because you cannot break out of the bondage that you are in well there is a deliverer and there is a rescuer and his name is Jesus Christ he is the one who rescues people he is the only one who is able to deliver people He's the only one who can take the punishment in the place of sinners. He's the only one who can give and impute a righteous life to sinners that it would count as their righteousness before a holy God so they could be set free from this prison and live in the kingdom of the beloved Son only through Christ. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. It is all of grace, And so it's appropriate that Paul's prayer is that the Colossians may know God's will, have the power to do God's will with thankfulness, remembering they have redemption in Christ, which is the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the Word that You've given us. And we ask that you would be honored and glorified in our understanding of it and our application of it. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the time in our service for communion, I'd like to read to you from Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19, I'm going to read verses six through Friends, have you been invited to the marriage supper of the Lord? This will be the Lord's Supper. This will be the Lord's Supper when we will sit and feast face to face with the One who has redeemed us and saved us. In Matthew chapter 26, we read of the Lord's Supper when Jesus gathered with his disciples in that upper room and he broke bread and drank wine with them. and said, "I'm going to have this meal with you again in Revelation 19:6 through nine. The Lord's Supper then. That was the Lord's Supper then. And then he said, "In between that first Lord's Supper and that second Lord's Supper, what did He tell his people to do? Keep having." that supper. I'm with you to the end of the age, this present age when we'll have that supper face-to-face. But I'm with you even to the end of the age. I'm among you. Christian, I'm in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because you look forward to, looking back to that first Lord's Supper, looking forward to that second Lord's Supper, keep having this Lord's Supper where you remember through these symbols of the bread and the juice symbolizing my body and my blood. Because we're going to have that supper together because Christ says, I died that your sins may be forgiven. So do not forget. This is why we call what we do on Sundays when we have this Lord's Supper an ordinance, a sacrament, so important instituted by Jesus Christ Himself, rich with symbolism, a memorial of what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. So if you are here today and you are a Christian, please, as the leaders are up here, come forward, be served the bread and the juice, go back to your seat, and we'll take it together as a family, as a body, representative of our union with Christ and our union with one another. So if you're a Christian, please be a part of this with us this morning. If you are not a Christian, please don't. Wait. Become a Christian first. So that this means something. So that you don't trample on what this is and what this symbolizes. If you're not sure if you're a Christian, we would say, wait. Make sure. Talk with another Christian. Talk with a pastor. Let's work through that together. Let's see if something more important than remembering the covenant you have with Jesus Christ, like getting into the covenant with Jesus Christ, needs to take place first. Let me pray again. Father, we pray that You would be honored and glorified as we set our minds and hearts on the ultimate sacrifice, Your Son, Jesus Christ, in our place. May we remember You well today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.